Today, we are talking about the roads less traveled. I don't know about you, but I love possibilities. I love the what ifs. I love the stuff that could have been, that should have been. We could just as soon call this episode the woulda, coulda, shoulda episode. We connect the dots. I take a bunch of interviews and events and I walk you through some some cool comic book stuff that almost almost happen. The almost are, are just as fun, in my opinion, as the stuff that actually does happen. So we take that journey together today on today's show. And because the wizard episode was so ridiculously popular and resonated with you guys, I share with you one of my favorite extended wizard incidents right towards the end there. When, when, when I, when I, I was taken out to a very special meal and, and my future was was to be decided for me. You've got to listen to this one. You got to hear it, okay? So we got the roads less traveled, woulda, coulda, shoulda, a lot of what ifs, and a big giant slice of hot air from the wizard. All on today's brand new observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and you are listening to another edition of Rob Observations, my twice weekly podcast where quite frankly, I just ramble about all things comic books, comic book pop culture, the movies you watch, the streaming, the games, the toys, the stuff that I grew up with. It is my obsession and I am more than happy to share it with you and I thank you for joining me each and every week. This is a very exciting time Summer is winding down. In fact, if it's not already over, it will be by the time this airs. It is a uh, breezy, wheezy week. Actually, we are in the the throes of a giant heat wave. I think everybody in the country is in the throes of a giant heat wave. Heat wave. It's the it's the end of August. It's the beginning of September. But here's the interesting thing. It it, it feels like that that uh, old kind of cosmic kismet that's going to bring you this episode today because all these things fell into place at one at one time and I really put my reporter's hat on and I came up with some very interesting uh, 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 stories to share with you today that, that pertain to comic book history and we're going to talk about the, the roads less traveled, the what ifs, the, the things that almost happened because some of the stuff that almost happened is almost if not more interesting than the stuff that did happen. Of course, in between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and, 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 and absolutely in between Empire Strikes Back hitting, you know, the sequel to the greatest movie of all time and not the biggest grossing movie of all time at the time. It, you, you may not like Star Wars, but there was no doubt that it stormed the culture in 1977. And to make the sequel, George Lucas had to then nail down all sorts, all manner of different ideas. And we have covered on several of, uh, of these podcasts some of the ideas and the concepts uh, that, that he didn't go with. I mean, Han Solo, Harrison Ford very much wanted to die in the sequel. And they, they walked right up to the ledge and almost did that. You can tell very clearly that, that Luke and Leah were not conceived as brother and sister as yet. Something that it's weird. Kind of a kind of a sidebar here. I don't hold that against him. So he figured it out later. Who cares? So they kissed. They had a smooch, okay, in the first one. And and then, like, they backed off from that and they went in a different direction. It, it, it's never bought me, but so many, and I'm going to say fanboys. I didn't use fanboys a lot, but I think this applies to fanboys. They want to, like, go, yeah, but he, he they were going to be, like, girlfriend and boyfriend, and then he made them brother. Whatever. It works. It all works for me. So he, um, 
he, he danced with one concept before writing the ship on another, but that really is kind of the, the stuff that we're going to talk about today, some very exciting stuff. But first, we have to speak as we wrap up this summer, the most reactive, listened to, popular episode I've done in years uh, was the Wizard episode. You guys showed up in enormous uh, waves of enthusiasm and numbers and listeners. And that episode clearly, um, you know, struck a chord with so many of you. And, you know, I, I, I had really been reluctant to share anything about all of my experiences with that magazine as both a creator and a publisher uh, because I just didn't want to give it a lot of bandwidth. But just the amount of very uh, constricted, very controlled bandwidth that I gave it uh, resulted in an outpouring. I, I cannot tell you how many professionals, how many publishers have contacted me. I've gotten texts, emails, instant messages. Rob, we ran into the same things that you did across the board. And so I'm going to tell you one final, I think final story, that is really funny about The Wizard. And I'm also going to wrap up because this story kind of encapsulates everything that they thought that they had become about, which is completely off the rails of what they had intended to be in the in the first place. And really, when it, when it comes down to it, it's about the accumulation and abuse of power. That That is what they were trying to do down to, and, and very subtly, as I said, the biggest offense that the magazine did to a generation was start telling them that your comics are like stocks and bonds. And, and, and one voice of opposition to me having a huge issue with the blue line that they started putting in all the values to sell, to tell you, unlike Overstreet Price Guide, the again, the, the gold standard of collecting and, and the gold standard throughout. I had stores who listened to this and said, Rob, I'm so glad you mentioned this because we could not use the wizard as a reliable source for our pricing the entirety of its published publication run because there was no basis with which that they were explaining the moves that they were making. And again, all of that continues to be A, suspect, and B, disgraceful because it was reckless. And again, when you saw them, they were kids. They were kids led by a kid. And it was like um, this um, nerd fraternity that decided, well, we can't make or create comic books, but we can affect them and we can cast aspersions on stuff we don't like and we can give extra boost to stuff that we do like even if no one else likes it as much as we do. And that is where you get the suspect and the disgraceful part of it. And we as an industry had to weather it. And like I said, whether it was people from DC Comics, people from Image Comics, who I haven't heard from in years, people from Malu Comics, uh, the aforementioned Bravura, uh, Dark Horse Comics, Everyone contacted me, uh, so many people, out of the blue over the last couple weeks since I recorded that episode, um, airing their same frustrations with this fraternity of kids that were friends of, you know, the Seamus family that took this seat of power and ran with it. Now, here's the best, <laughs> here's the best example I'm going to give to you, okay? So, I have left Image Comics, uh... We have done an entire episode on this. I have read the interviews to you in the feud. There's a feud uh, episode about Todd and myself, and I read directly from his Comics Journal interview. There is no denying, because it's in print, He, it's his own words, he gave the interview. He's very candid. He was very angry with me. He was very, very angry with his little buddy. It reminds me of Shaq and Kobe. It always has. When I saw Shaq and Kobe, I was like, oh, I know how this is going to work out because I had seen Todd and Rob before. 
And it's the uh, little buddy, little brother, does not usurp big brother ever. Do not score more buckets than me. Do not get more rebounds. Do not get more votes. Do not get more applause. This also goes all the way back biblically to Saul and David. Okay, Saul was the king, but the crowds cheered for David, and it pissed Saul off. Well, Todd was furious that I had left. Uh, I had moved my books out of Image into my own label. Uh, I had a company called Maximum Press. I was printing. Uh, I was. I was producing Evangeline Battlestar Galactica, a cool fantasy. Uh, series called Maximum, uh, called War Child, and they were all getting great reviews. Battlestar Galactica was very well received. Evangeline became our best-selling book, and War Child was acclaimed. Uh, so much so that Alan Moore was going to do the follow-up. Okay, I, I, I haven't covered that yet, but so much so that so much so that Alan Moore read War Child, and I have two issues that he wrote that will probably never see print. Uh, because they're not completed, but he was enthusiastic about making it happen based on the initial storyline that I had given him that he had shared and read that we were producing and did produce the War Child miniseries. So Maximum Press was in great shape. I, in the catalog, had moved Supreme and Youngblood, two of the earliest image comics, into, and I think glory and profit. So no, four four major extreme titles were moved to Maximum Press, which means they were now outside of Image Comics. I then started getting the threatening emails, the threatening uh, letters, the threatening faxes. That's the sound the fax machine came when there was some sweet wax paper coming through with a mean message. And it was like, you have to put your books back right now or we will threaten to remove you. I said, how about I just leave and I don't, you know, act like I'm staying because... How are you going to remove me? All my books are already gone. My books are gone. The majority of my books are now at Maximum Press. I had left behind a skeleton in Image Comics. They saw it. They knew what it was. And the flip on this was I had signed on with Jim Lee to do Heroes Reborn. And it occurs to me that it was two years ago that all of these Heroes Reborn episodes and the Fighting American episodes, it's like a six-part series altogether because they just flow one after the other. Heroes Reborn was the previous and is still the, the 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 king of the hill in terms of the episodes on this of, of of observations that get the most listening to because people just go what and again i had people <laughs> from wildstorm homage studios go i didn't know this happened what um that th- there is a lot of drama you should listen to the heroes reborn episodes that is all real-time stuff i read you memos i read you contracts i read you deals uh all of the all of so much correspondence so much of what was going on. I peel back the curtain and tell you how tumultuous that period was. And that also was great, uh, had upset Mr. McFarland a great deal. And that's just, that's just the way it is. It's, it, this isn't, this isn't tattletaling. This isn't, you know, telling tales out of school. This is all the stuff that created great friction. Uh, Todd wanted nothing to do with this. He didn't think Jim and I should be doing this. He thought it sent all the wrong message. He thought it put Marvel back into a seat of power and prominence that he thought had been weakened. Everybody had their different agendas. Well, in the fall of 1996, I have left Image. I am gone. I am on my own. I have not yet formed what would be my next label, which was awesome. Um, and if, in case you're wondering why we... Uh, a was was going to get us at the head of the catalog. It's that simple. The reason it was named awesome and not extreme, there wasn't a legality. We wanted an A name that would get us at the head of the catalog. So you would see A, awesome, first. And uh, you know who called up? Jeff Loeb 
to tell them how much they didn't like that name was two staffers from Wizard Magazine. I was told in no uncertain terms, oh, we don't like that name. And they said, because then when we say awesome, we're going to associate the word awesome in everyday life with Rob Liefeld. Please don't name your company awesome, they said to Jeff Loeb, who was saying, no, Rob's already named it awesome. But here's the deal. Uh, I'm winding down my deal with Marvel Comics because they have entered into bankruptcy. I have gotten tipped off that this is what they're going to do. This is what they're going to file, which means everybody under contract is going to have to um, uh, work under different terms. They offered me a lesser deal going forward and said that they had already spoken to Jim Lee and he would take it in case I didn't. He would take the downgraded fees for the back six of Captain America and the back six of Avengers, which is seven through 12 and seven through 12. What Jim was really playing for was the hope that he would make it to another year and get a Heroes Reborn year two that was being dangled. But I already knew because I had uh, an insider at Marvel who said that is not happening at all. You're both getting, um, you know, removed. Like if, if you don't take this deal, like it's not coming back anyway. So, so I had an insider who said, Rob, if you take that back six at at that, that back six at that reduced rate, there is nothing left. There is not, there won't be anything beyond that. So I said, I, I've told the stories I want to tell. I don't work on, I, I don't want to work under these new conditions. I don't know what Marvel's going to look like in a bankruptcy. Uh, again, I, I, I was, because we were contract players and we were paid at the rates we were and at the very expensive rates that Jim and I were, we had got, we were, we had to legally before filing, you had to contract contact your contract players, contact your contract players, which they did. And so I remember hanging up with my wife the uh, day after Christmas and said, Marvel is filing bankruptcy tomorrow. And uh, this was 1996. Well, right around this time, uh, prior to getting awesome set up, but post, uh, post image. So, so this is probably maybe January of 1997. Garib Seamus, who owns the Wizard Magazine, says, hey, I'm going to be driving through, doing my West Coast swing. I'm visiting all the studios, all the companies, which meant going to Wildstorm in San Diego, going to Top Cow in Los Angeles. I'm going to swing by Extreme. Now, Marvel and DC are both in New York at the time. <clears throat> the people from Malibu Comics told me after the episode that they never got any, um, that, 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 that Wizard always said, no, we have no time for you. We don't want to really do any promotions with you. So it certainly wasn't Malibu, but maybe maybe also Garib was trying to set up some media deals with different companies, getting a syndicated wizard show that never got off the ground. But he uh, he said, "I'm going to swing by. Let's let's have lunch." <clears throat> Despite my relationship with him, I'm you know fairly bored every every day. Even even running a studio at the time, we had our studio in Fullerton. It was still bustling, teeming with talent, names, and product. And but but it, every day would. You know, you're looking for a new story. You're looking for a new event. So the uh, kind of my arch nemesis is coming through and he wants to have lunch. I said, sure, let's do it. Because the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Okay. So uh, at that point, Image Comics was coming after me. Uh, This is right before the lawsuits would get dismissed because Jim was selling his company and he couldn't sell the company if I was threatening to sue Wildstorm. He had been said, you've got to remove these lawsuits. I cover all of this. In the, the Heroes Reborn stuff, the Image Comics stuff, the Fighting American stuff, all of this is covered. Somewhere in all of those six episodes, you're going to get greater detail of what I'm telling you now. Because we went down thinking, wow, we were going to go, go, go for this huge, very calamitous conflict legally because 
Um, I had sued them for lost um, payments that they had held, and they were then countersuing me. <clears throat> Jim said, pay this printing bill, and we're settled. We're square. And I think I've, if, I, if you never listen to those episodes, uh, my attorney and I were like, what's going on here? I, th- this is it. We came all the way down here to La Jolla, to these law offices. Jim had asked Larry Martyr, who was running as publisher Image Comics, to step outside. And it was just Jim, me, Jim and his lawyer, me and my lawyer. And that's when he said, pray th- pay this printing bill, and we're going to call it clean. You withdraw yours, we withdraw ours, and we can go on. Later that afternoon on the drive back to Southern California from La Jolla is when I got the phone call from an undisclosed source, very well informed, said, you know, that happened because Jim needs to get this lawsuit off the books. He can't sell Wildstorm if you have an existing lawsuit. Other people who have looked at his book say, wait, you're being sued right now. Resolve this, and then we'll talk. And that is, you know, that's just the way it goes. So we got it resolved. <clears throat> so this is in this between area. And uh, Garib Seamus wants to come through and have lunch with me. Every day in Brea, or not every day, every week, every occasion that I drive past this TGIF. <laughs> if you guys have a TGIF, we still have this TGIF in Brea uh, near the near the Brea Mall. I, uh, I drive past it and I think of myself and Mr. Seamus on the patio because he came by extreme. We hopped in the car. We drove probably 10 minutes to this TGIF. Uh, and uh, it was there that when we sat down, uh, Garib Seamus, uh, believing, I think at that time that he was something like Michael Corleone, Corleone in the Godfather, put his napkin on his lap and he said, so here's, here's how things are going for you. <clears throat> and I'm like, Oh, do tell. I'm going to get, I'm going to get told how my life is. And, uh, yes, this, this is how this, this is my recollection of how this went down. I did not go to New York to see Mr. Seamus. Seamus came through to see me. And he said, let me tell you how things are going to go. Uh, let me let me tell you how things are going to play out for you. You've lost, you've lost all support. You've lost all support. You know, you you had you had the uh, the protection of of the Image Comics label and as well as your fellow founders partners, but that's gone. That's been removed. You know, for all intents and purposes, they're they're, they're your enemies. They're your nemesis. That that protection is over. You're no longer now producing any more work for Marvel with Heroes Reborn. And so that, that protection has gone away. So uh, I think you're going to find yourself in, in, you know, a very difficult future. And what he was trying to tell me was, we are so thrilled that you are in a pickle that we are excited to tell you to your face that you're in a pickle. And we, I did not get a sense at all uh, that, that there was a life raft being afforded me, not that I needed it, not that I wanted it. Uh, if you know me, I'm a fighter. And so I, I just sat there and I think I had fajitas and I just was like rolling up my fajitas, putting my grilled onions and my grilled peppers on my, on my chicken and my steak. And I said, okay, I just kept nodding. I didn't have a lot to say. It was just interesting that this person wanted to go out to lunch with me to tell me that basically all of my options were, were done. And I can only imagine, but I, I know the people who had been calling Jeff Loeb, who, Jeff Loeb, who I had partnered with in Awesome, had been calling him as well. Um, also, that I've never really touched on the call that Todd McFarlane made to Jeff Loeb, but I know it like the back of my hand because I was. Uh, Jeff called me later after that call, um, aghast, ag- absolutely aghast. He had never spoken to Todd before, but it was a very uh, 
he was talking to a very, he felt the entire call was semi-sinister. And the entire theme was, we are trying to strip Rob of all his allies and um, isolate him. And this is what was being told to me. I had no protection, quote unquote, and I don't work for a big, important label doing a big, important event anymore. So your options are limited as to how you move forward. And again, let me get back to the fact that my career, Jim Lee's career, Todd McFarlane's career, Eric Larson's career, all of the image guys, we earned our career before Wizard existed. They did not have an, uh, 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 a group of followers that they could assign to us, a group of like, you know, it was almost like, well, we can reroute interest to you or we can strip it away. No, no, you cannot. That is not, that's not going to happen. And uh, let me give you a really, this, this is very applicable. If you know me, you know, and my family knows, uh, I have loved uh, a musician named Rick Springfield since the early 80s. You're like, oh my gosh, he's talking about Rick Springfield. Look, Rick Springfield shreds. He is a rocker. He is a rock and roller. He can just shred on that guitar. I have seen him 10 times with my wife over the last 25 years. Uh, he, I watched him when he did the Taste of Newport. Newport Beach has a, you know, just like all of your cities all across the United States, somewhere some in some town, they do a taste of whatever, a taste of Poughkeepsie, a taste of Philadelphia, a taste of Anaheim, a taste of, you know, Chicago. And the restaurants all participate. And well, the Newport one was fairly bougie and they had a little theater set up in the middle of the entire uh, taste of Newport that took place down on the grounds of a huge, very well-trafficked mall called uh, Fashion Island. And down Fashion Island, which is just a few blocks up from the water at Newport Beach, uh, they had the Taste of Newport that was every fall. Rick Springfield was playing. He had about 1,500 people, you know, uh, in attendance. That's as many people as they put. It, 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 it was part of getting into a Taste of Newport. You didn't then get paid to go see Rick Springfield. You um, paid to go to a Taste of Newport, and you saw Rick Springfield. Now, on some weekends, because we went a couple successive years, you saw the Bengals, you saw the Go-Go's. Obviously, it was a very, um, you know, you saw Berlin. Uh, it was a playing to, especially in the late 1990s, 1998, 1999, early 2000s, it was playing to a sensibility of that these people are in their late 30s, early 40s. This was their favorite music when they were in high school. Seeing Rick Springfield live at Taste of Newport in front of 1,500 people, he was shredding, working so hard, just crushing it just crushing it and uh, just playing all those hits. He is so much more than Jesse's girl. He is love is all right tonight. I've done everything for you. Human touch. Um, uh, uh, love somebody. I mean, uh, many, 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 many albums, many don't talk to strangers. Holy crap. And uh, I was really, I admired how well, he, how hard he worked and how hard he worked the crowd and how he shredded that guitar and the energy. He would come out amongst us playing his instrument, singing, why am I telling you this? Well, in successive years, the next time we saw him was at a local Orange County, another Memorial Day fair. Now it was a venue, there's probably 2,000, 2,200, max 2,500 people, but it was bigger. Same show, just completely shreds it. I inquired even at one point about getting him to play an event for me, and uh, I had looked into how much it would cost, and, you know, he was doing well, but he was finding his way back. He was discovering, like, I'm I'm going to define myself as a musical as a musical act. 
I'm going to define uh, and I'm going to show the audience, you know, how much I can entertain them. And he entertained us and he did amazing. He came back. We were in probably the sixth row at this uh, Orange County Memorial Day, you know, three day event. And he comes out on the seats, walking over each seat. And I remember he stood right next to my wife and sang the song and put the mic in her mouth where she would say, don't talk to strangers because he's going around to everyone, you know, and he had a fan for the rest of his life with my wife because he put that extra work in. He left the stage. He walked across all the folded chairs. So again, we would see him next in an amphitheater in Pasadena. We would see him next in Las Vegas. Uh, he was definitely getting bigger and bigger venues. Now he's playing to 3,500 people. He's playing to 4,000 people. Right before the pandemic, he was at the uh, Universal Amphitheater. Oh, I'm sorry, he was at the Universal Amphitheater, and then he was at the Irvine Amphitheater uh, just, just 20 minutes from our house. And now he's, paying to, he's playing to, you know, 6,500 people, which he's, it's not an arena. It's not a stadium. He's not Taylor Swift. I, I took my daughter to the Taylor Swift concert. It's not 80,000 people, okay? But this guy worked his way up in the course of two, two decades back into the sweet spot of not 1,500 venues, but 6,500, 7,000-seat venues. We went and saw him just this last week. I wanted to see, does he still have that same energy? He's 73 years old. Why am I telling you this? It's about hard work and not letting anyone else determine what they can do for you. He picks up the guitar. He books the dates. He puts on the show, gets the word of mouth crazy, gets the audience in an uproar, and, and, and I've seen it. I've seen word of mouth. I've watched social media. I've watched people at the dawn of Twitter. Other people were seeing him at the same time that I was seeing him in, 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 in the dawn of Facebook in 2006, 2008, 2009. And people are like, oh my gosh, I just caught Rick Springfield. This guy rocks. He jams. He shreds. This is how I've always seen my career. If I show up, if I do the work, I will earn the audience. Just like Todd earned the audience. Spider-Man had lost its luster. Todd came along and gave it extra juice and put Spider-Man back on top. X-Men... Jim took it over, hit all the sweet buttons, rocketed it to the top. I took New Mutants, stripped it down to the bare bones, kept basically Cannonball and Boom Boom, and gave you Feral and Shatterstar and Domino and Cable and, and Deadpool and Strife and all the others. And I worked my way. I worked my way into the favor of the audience the same way that I've watched Rick Springfield at 73. We probably saw him when he was 50, 48. Uh, and, and he has just absolutely, you know, continues to plateau playing to bigger arenas now than he did 20 years ago, much bigger. And we've watched the climb. We've watched the climb from the fairgrounds to the, you know, to, to the, to the little mini amphitheaters to now the big giant YouTube theater that's uh, attached to the mega billion dollar SoFi stadium where the Rams and the Chargers play. And they're booked. You, you look at, you know, the Doobie Brothers are playing there next. Uh, uh, what was, acts that my kids like, different hip-hop acts, different um, different uh, Demi Lovato, I guess. I saw that on the digital screen she was coming. I mean, the YouTube theater is packed. It is, it is a well-booked theater. My mindset is always I can outwork you with my talent and my effort. And so when Mr. Seamus was telling me in, early 1997, that my options were few, I said, no, 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 no. You don't get to make that determination. I make that determination. 
I will make the determination by the stories I tell, the art I, I produce, and, uh, you know, the effort that I put into to my work. And yet he took great pleasure in telling me at that time, basically, in no uncertain terms, what does what your options limited mean? It means you're, you're, things are looking pretty bleak for you, but they weren't. And what he didn't know was that I had already sold a screenplay with Mr. Will Smith for a million dollars to a, to a, to a, you know, studio like Universal, Universal Pictures. I had other options besides comics. I was going out there. I was hustling all the time. A screenplay that had to be written, by the way. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, like, like that, that, that the work had been put in. So, hysterically, I look back on that. And as, as he drove away when we went back to the studios, I was like, wow, these guys really are counting me out. They're counting me out. <clears throat> and they think they have the power with which to do that. When I did the Fighting American, six months later, they would report erroneously on the entire case. When, as you'll see, if you listen to the Fighting American episodes, there's two of them. The Fighting American was licensed by me from this Jack Kirby and Joe Simon estate because they owe, they they co-owned the property. Fighting American was a property that had been published by Marvel previously. They had collected all of the original Fighting American comic books into a handsome hardcover by Simon and Kirby. They did not tell the judge this when they filed to sue me to prevent me from printing Fighting American. Yes, the lawsuit that they set out, the, the, the entire purpose of the lawsuit was to keep me from publishing Fighting American. No caveats, just keep me from publishing it. They did a temporary restraining order, which we turned into a trial date which turned into a victory from us because you did hold Fighting American in your hands and he had a shield. Fighting American in one illustration that Joe Simon had done 10 years prior on the cover of a biopic, a, a, a kind of a Joe Simon uh, retrospective book, he had put Captain America, uh, he had put Fighting American, he created both. I can mix them up. Joe Simon, Jack Kirby did both Captain America and Fighting American. They also did shared work on the shield. So they, they've been around in, in regards to these patriotic characters. The lawsuit was to prevent me from printing fighting American. And they didn't want him to, to built into that was they didn't want him depicted using a shield. Well, I remember the day we waited for the judge's decision. And this is covered in that episode. And bottom line, we were given the green light. Well, this is the case that if the internet had happened, I would have tweeted to you immediately. Just like decisions that happen in the courtroom now, whether it's a sports angle, a, a criminal angle, a, a you know Johnny Depp, Amber Heard angle, a political angle, we hear it immediately. We hear it immediately. Um, and, and not all you know important cases have have jurors outside, have, have news cameras. Not everything is the, uh, the Britney Spears case or the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case. But I certainly would have got taken to Twitter to say, hey, we won. We're publishing Fighting American. Well, you had to wait a month for The Wizard to give it a little blurb that said, Marvel prevents Liefeld from throwing shield of Fighting American. It positioned the story as if they won, as if that, that's not it. The lawsuit was to prevent us from publishing Fighting American. Wizard twisted it to portray that somehow myself and Jeff Loeb, we had... Um, you know, been handed our asses 
and the decision that he couldn't throw his shield. Well, we didn't want him to throw his shield. We just gave him a shield. And then we made sure that that shield fired rockets and bullets and had and had blades in it and made it all sorts of mini fun uh, things and applications. But we won. But again, what did Wizard do? Wizard didn't tell you. They weren't true. They, were, they lied to you. They didn't say Liefeld won the case. That is not in the sentence. They said Marvel prevents Liefeld from throwing the shield. Who cares? Fighting American came to you. We published it for the two year, two years that we had left on the uh, on the license because we about six to seven months of it was eaten up fighting to get Fighting American out there. Fighting American, if you can find them, those issues feature um, great fun work by myself, Stephen Platt, Ed McGinnis. I hope you find them. I hope you dig them. But again, just wanted to share with you the the again the 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 Don Corleone uh, attempt to influence and exert power like he he had power like a mafia a mafia you know uh crime lord telling me your options are limited you don't have protection look at the words he used you don't have protection you don't have the protection of your fellow partners and founders you you don't have marvel and your options are limited i was like what the hell that just it made me laugh and you know what it did it made me work harder like it always does like rick springfield i'm gonna jam harder i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna sing better i'm gonna put more energy and I am going to win you over and get your friends to say, uh, to, 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 you tell the, you're going to tell your friends so that when I swing by here again next year, there's twice as many tickets sold. They need more chairs. I need a bigger venue. We are what we put our effort and work into. And that is how I have always determined my course of my career. Uh, I could have gotten on the new mutants and said, Hey, it's a paycheck. I'll just draw all these kids. But I, I saw more for myself and that was the best venue that I got. That was the best venue that I had in which to make a mark, and I did. But so that wraps up, really, this guy wanted to take me out to assert his, as if he was, it was as if he was delivering to me the verdict handed in by all of comics through him because he was the shaper. And and again, like, well, your options are limited. What do you mean my options are limited? You mean if I go down to the comics right now, no one's going to want me to to, to to talk to them about comic books because that, that, that they've been buying from me, you know, for, for the last 11, 12 years at the time? That, that You know, that that's how long I've been in the comics industry. So crazy times. That's the bow. That's, his, that, that's the bow wrapped on the wizard. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, it, it, it must have been difficult for them to watch none of what they had planned come through and then eventually have to shutter and uh, go, you know, go out of business themselves. Because like I said, uh, so many of the frustrations that people shared with me were tempered in the last couple of weeks by everyone just celebrating the fact that it went out of business and that they don't, we don't have to deal with them anymore. And really the biggest reason is because technology made nothing that they do special. It, it, everything that they did and the way that they manipulated things could no longer be so if you could pick up the microphone immediately and talk to people direct direct to consumer is a is a, is a is a fantastic application and it has um helped really turn the tide for so many people who used to especially those people who believe that they were at the you know at the beck and call and at the behest of the gatekeepers that were the kids that were running the asylum that we all called Wizard Magazine. Now, here's the deal. In regards to pivoting towards what-ifs and, and things that did not come to pass, I love this stuff. I have always been more fascinated by what didn't happen, what other roads could have been traveled, what other options 
could have been um, entertained. And and this came about as I was going through my comic book boxes. And look, guys, I don't know about you, but often I get lost in my comic book boxes. I, I About five years ago, I decided to move all of my favorite comic books into the house via a section of my garage that I you know, put a bunch of long boxes in. So I didn't have to go to my storage units and I wanted my comics closer to me. It's part of this kind of romance that I've been going through. And so I purposely sought out that, that is a pin that just dropped from the magazine that I, uh, that I grabbed to read from because boy, oh boy, the type that I'm about to read from is, this, this is some tiny print and this is a very, uh, I mean, this this must be 40 years old, this magazine. As I was going through, so I'm, I'm, I'm out in the garage and I'm flipping through my comics. And again, I'm just kind of, there, there, there are some dedicated, like I've got my entire X-Men run, my Avengers run, my Fantastic Four run, my Legion of Superheroes run, my, my uh, Teen Titans run. Those are all Marvel team up. Those have their own dedicated boxes. I didn't bring everything. I couldn't bring all my Superman, my Wonder Woman, my Flash, my Green Lantern. Those had to stay behind. I I, I really just brought back the stuff I, I absolutely love. When I go to my storage units, I make sure I definitely kick off the lids on all the boxes that were left behind, and I, and I dance with those boxes too. But that's getting fewer and farther between. But the stuff that I love, the stuff that I love the most is here with me. And as I was going through one of the boxes, I said, oh my gosh, is this really... The X-Men Chronicles. What is the X-Men Chronicles? Let me tell you something. There was a brief, a company called Fantaco. F-A-N-T-A-C-O. Fantaco. And they did a bunch of what I would call fan magazines celebrating. They did an Avengers Chronicle. They did a Spider-Man Chronicles. They did a Fantastic Four Chronicles. They did a Daredevil Chronicles. But the first one that I can remember is the X-Men Chronicles. And this this thing is tenuous. I mean, this is my ancient copy. It is tenuously hanging by one last staple. It is a beautiful Dave Cockrum cover. This is right when Dave Cockrum had taken back the X-Men. This is 19. Uh, this is between 1981 and 1982. So this is, in fact, 40 years old, this magazine. Inside is a bunch of fan art, but they got a... Just like they got George Perez, a fantastic wraparound, penciled and inked, fully colored by George for the Avengers Chronicles. They got Dave Cockrum, who was drawing the X-Men at the time, obviously drew Giant Size X-Men number one, which launched Colossus Storm, so much the new Giant Size X-Men. And uh, th- this is actually inside, says it's, it's, it is published in 1981. That's right, because one of the things I'm going to tell you about hasn't come to pass yet. So this is, it says right here, 1981, Fant- Fanta- Fantico... Enterprises, Fantico Enterprises. Well, again, all of it is mostly fan art, but as I was flipping through this to see if there was any juicy interviews that I may have forgotten after I was admired, I mean, this, this, this Dave Cockrum cover is one of, if this came up for auction, I would definitely throw multiple bids on this thing. It's great. On the, on the front, it says X-Men Chronicles, the magazine for X-Men fans. Well, it was a buck 25 in 1981 and I bought it and I read it cover to cover. And I see in here that there's an interview with Jim Shooter because Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief at the time. And I've, I've, you guys know what a giant Jim Shooter fan I am. I, I, I've chronicled that towards the end of his reign as editor-in-chief, like stuff like Secret Wars 2 was, uh, was representative of, of, of I, I think, some of the hubris and, and maybe some of the, um, you know, exalted uh, position that he had put him himself in and, and, and maybe he was no longer hungry. Maybe he was also like the Wizard Magazine just interested in holding on to power. But what got him there 
you know, all my favorite storylines of all my favorite comic books, and I read all of I'm I'm aware of everything that's going on, is the Burn X-Men X-Men, the Burn Claremont X-Men, the Perez Burn, you know, Avengers, the Korvac, the Korvac Saga, Bride of Ultron, Kang the Conqueror, all that stuff. Uh, Graviton, Count Nefaria, all this stuff. Some of the stuff Jim wrote. Jim wrote the Korvac Saga, okay? While he's also, you know, the hot big big editor-in-chief. X-Men, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, he lets all these guys run loose. I am a huge fan. So it makes sense that this writer, uh, whose name is Henry Brort Jess, B-R-O-E-R-T-J-E-S, Brortes, Brortes, I don't know. I apologize, Henry. He does this interview with Jim Shooter, and so I'm reading it. Very, very, very tiny type, very, very small. And he's asking about his influence on the X-Men books. Uh, They cover a lot of why Dark Phoenix had to die. And look, I like the fact that he had heard that Jim Salakrup, who was editing X-Men at the time, had been working with Chris, and they were going to let Jean Grey live after she had killed this entire planet of aliens, that that the Imperial Guard were going to defeat the X-Men, but then agree to release Jean, and she was going to live with the X-Men back on planet Earth in kind of a a parole existence. And Jim said, no, you can't do this. She she wiped out an entire planet. She needs to be, you know, brought to justice. And then they came up with the fact that she would take her own life and that she would kind of heroically sacrifice herself. Phoenix is such, again, if you listen to my X-Factor episode a couple weeks back with Jackson Geis and Kurt Busiek, uh, all the different interviews and, and comments by them and how that book came to be. I mean, that was a big uh, source of contentment because we as fans had really had a satisfying ending as regard in, with regards to Jean Grey because we liked how she died. I always thought it was a tearjerker. It was a great sacrifice. But now they're saying, well, that wasn't Jean Grey. That's how they would say that, you know, alter this story five, six years later. That wasn't Jean Grey. That was a phoenix force that had been masquerading in the real Jean Grey. It's the, is in a cocoon at the bottom of the ocean. So... But along the way here, and this is really interesting, in an X-Men Chronicles magazine, this one question is indicative of kind of how this is shaped. In the back, there is a five-page article, and for this kind of very slim magazine, uh, this five-page article uh, is about is New Kids on the Block, and it, it, it's referring to the success of both the X-Men and... Uh, it's referring to, both the, to the success of both the X-Men and the Teen Titans. They like to draw... Compare and contrast the X-Men and the Titans here. So the big thing we're going to focus on here today is, and it came as a result of this question. Henry, the interviewer, asks Jim Shooter, says, uh, let's shift gears here a bit. What has been the reaction at Marvel Comics to the Teen Titans by Marvel Wolfman and George Perez? A lot of comparisons have been drawn between the Teen Titans that Wolfman and Perez are doing for DC, and the X-Men. Len Wein, the Teen Titans editor, says there's no connection whatsoever because, after all, he created the new X-Men. But there does seem to be, from time to time, some stylistic similarities. How do you see it? He asked the editor-in-chief at the time. Now, X-Men is the number one book. He even quotes, because they ask how fans are dealing with John Byrne leaving and Dave Cockrum taking over the book, and I'm just going to tell you right here, in no uncertain terms, he says, uh, the first question is how, the first question of this interview is how are fans coping with the fact that John Byrne left and Dave Cockrum came back? And he's like, well, uh, 
anyone who is drawing the X-Men right now would instantly become a star. Dave Cockrum is really great, and I'm not saying that no one noticed the switch. I think there were a certain number of people who were very disappointed, who didn't like Dave Cockrum stuff as much as they like John Burns. I think there's a certain number of people who prefer Dave Cockrum stuff. In general, the impact we've seen is virtually nil. The two sides sort of have balanced out. X-Men is still the book that everyone is the most excited about. The editor, the interviewer then says, how is the mail concerned? And then he says, well, this is Jim Shooter talking. From what Chris Claremont tells me, it's all been very positive. He says, on almost all the books, the letters that we get are almost, almost, they're almost overwhelmingly positive. Books that get a lot of negative mail are few and far between. He says, uh, Negative mail is really infrequent as far as Marvel Comics go. In general, you get a couple of guys complaining that John Byrne is gone. You get a couple of people who uh, rave that Dave Cockrum and Joe Rubenstein are a better team than Byrne and Austin. Sales-wise, the book is soaring. That's the key. 1981. Sales-wise, X-Men is soaring. He says, uh, The direct market, it is still our number one comic book in the direct market, Far and away. Far and away, okay? So, X-Men is doing great. X-Men is a giant moneymaker for Marvel Comics. It is, It is, and I'm telling you, as a teenager who was buying the X-Men at the time, it was the sweetest candy. It was the favorite ice cream. It was the best thing among all the other favorite things, okay? It was the tops. So, when this guy says... You know, the Titans is getting that kind that, that, that same kind of buzz over at DC and your Marv Wolfman and George Perez who basically left Marvel to go do it, so they're rivals. I imagine Jim was not very happy, and you're gonna see by his answer. I've now set this up. X-Men is selling very well at the point that this is this question about the X-Men and Titans is asked. And Jim Shooter's answer to you know, like, how do you feel about the fact that the Titans is is seen as DC's version of X-Men, he says, Jim Shooter says, well, at first, I, first I should point out to you that Len Wein is very fond of saying he created the new, the, new X, the new X-Men when, in fact, I believe Dave Cockrum had at least as much to do with it, if not more, than Len. Maybe I've only read a couple of issues of the Teen Titans. We're going to come back to that loaded answer where he kind of, in, in Jim Shooter is putting Len Wein in his place. I'm not saying that's right. This is Jim's version. Jim, as a competitor, looking that his Len Wein has left and is writing Green Lantern and Swamp Thing over at DC, editing Teen Titans. Marv Wolfman and George Perez are now producing Teen Titans. George is also doing the Justice League. Marv is doing Batman as well. I mean, his three of his most important workers, uh, freelancers, left and are now helping the rival kind of find a brand new pulse and be competitive. So he kind of says, well, not so fast. Len overcredits himself, as he's basically saying there. And he thinks it's, it's as important that Dave Cockrum, Dave Cockrum, uh, his, his contributions, you know, need to be leveled up, is basically what he's saying. He says, uh, maybe I've only read a few issues of the Teen Titans, but I don't see the X-Men in it at all. I, I think it looks like the Avengers, basically because of the heavy George Perez influence on the book. I, I think they're doing some interesting stuff. I just don't think, anything they're doing is revolutionary. I don't think they're doing anything on the Titans that I, this is Jim Shooter speaking, haven't seen before. And uh, then this is the reason that we're having this conversation. This is the reason I'm sharing this with you. The interviewer says, what prompted the change in plans for the crossover with DC? 
Originally, it was going to be the X-Men and the Legion of Superheroes. And now it's going to be X-Men and the Teen Titans. Was that Marvel's idea or DC's idea? Just so you know, what we got was X-Men Titans, written by Chris Claremont, illustrated by Walt Simonson and Terry Austin. It is fantastic. It is the gold standard of company crossovers. It could not have been more exciting and entertaining. I bought it the day it came out. I went right over my aunt and uncle's. I I was supposed to go out and and swim at their pool. And I sat inside at the lunch table and just poured over that issue. And then I, they're like, aren't you going to come out to the pool? I brought the X-Men Titans with me. And at the time, I only had enough money to afford one copy. So I put it in the shade on a table. I put some weights on it so it wouldn't blow blow off. But I went into the, in, into the pool. I swam around. But all I really wanted to do was get out of the pool and go back and read X-Men Titans. Terry Austin inking Walt Simonson, double-sized X-Men, uh, Titans, uh, Dark Side is the bad guy, Jean Grey slash Phoenix. Now, I didn't know anything about this X-Men Legion, okay? So... What we got was good, and it sold well. And we're going to cross. We're, we're going to talk to Dave Cockrum. You're going to get Dave Cockrum's weigh in on this, as well as Walt Simonson's weigh in on this, and then we're going to do uh, a couple of um, more fun what ifs before we wrap this particular episode. So hang tight. Jim Shooter answers when he says, "Was this Marvel's idea or DC's idea to change it from the Legion of Titans?" He goes, "It was DC's idea. I think it's a mistake. I think." X-Men would be much better off teaming up with the Legion of Superheroes. It's the more established series. It has better characters and more recognizable characters. I think the Titans is sort of their hot book right now at the moment, but the Legion really has been the consistent winner that they ought to go with. I mean, for the same reasons that we did Superman and Spider-Man rather than Superman and the X-Men. X-Men is much more popular book right now, but I think it would make much more sense for the X-Men to team up with the Legion the long-standing, top-selling book at DC. And then the interviewer says, and Marvel is producing the entirety of this crossover. And he says, right. And Chris Claremont will write it. Yes. Is Dave Cockerham going to draw it? The guy asks. He says, well, that was the plan. I don't know now. I don't know if Dave can fit it in or if he will. But that was the theory. If he doesn't, we've got some interesting alternatives. And he says, when is the book coming out? It'll be out next summer. The Hulk Batman book will come out at Christmas time, and then we'll have the X-Men and Teen Titans next summer. So this got me like, what? There was an X-Men Legion? And let me, let me, there's a couple interesting things that Jim Shooter did not bring up here. Jim Shooter broke into the business writing the Legion of Superheroes. If you did not know that, you know that now. He wrote stories from his house as a 13-year-old. He wrote Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes stories, and he sent them in, and he sent so many of them in that eventually... I believe it's Carrie Bates or another editor. Uh, maybe it was Julius Schwartz. Somebody at DC said, we should hire this kid. These are good stories. They started paying Jim Shooter through the mail. He is the youngest on record ever to write and, publish, and, and be published as a comic book talent as a 13, 14-year-old kid. And he went on to come to fame writing The Legion of Superheroes. Now, in his late teens, early 20s, he was still writing it. When I'm breaking into comics in 1974, 1975, my favorite book at DC Comics is Legion of Superheroes. It's drawn by Mike Grell. It's drawn by Dave Cockrum. It's written by Jim Shooter. Okay? This is the first time I see this guy's name before I then see him as an editor and then editor-in-chief and then my favorite writer on The Avengers ever over at Marvel. 
So Jim Shooter has a long-standing history with Legion. I think he should have at least, for the people who don't know, mentioned in this article, like, of course I want the Legion. They're part of my history. They're part of my success. I helped write some of the best and most well-received Legion stories in the modern era, and that would be true. If he said that, he would not be lying. He would be 100% on the money. But he doesn't bring that up in that answer, which is weird. Here's where things get weirder. Dave Cockrum became the artist on the giant-sized X-Men went to Marvel because the the powers that be at DC Comics, and I've covered this in a um, uh, uh, an episode that I did about a year ago about like unknown history, the, un, the, the, the secret history of the X-Men, I think there's, there's a couple of those episodes. And one of these I uncover, and I give you in great detail, how they would not give Dave some of his original art back. It was not DC's policy, but he really wanted a double-page spread, which was the, the, the wedding of Bouncing Boy and Duo Damsel, and it had all the Legionnaires. And the guy decided, again, I don't know if it was Carmen Infantino. I don't know who it was. It's in, it's in that podcast. I read all of the facts right there in the, in, the, in the context of that podcast. But the bottom line, the powers that be would not give him that artwork back. It pissed him off. He left. He went over to DC Comics, and he was the guy who, now we'll pick up, I'll, I'll transition. He goes into the process of making the giant size, the new X-Men, the international team with Colossus, Storm, uh, uh, Nightcrawler. Those are the characters that he is a partial, a co-creator of. Wolverine was already in Giant Size Hulk because he was Canadian. They pulled him in. Banshee had already existed in the, in the history of the X-Men. They pulled him in. Sunfire had already existed. They pulled him in. So again, they're building out this international team, but they needed new faces. And Dave, what uh, was was essential and really, in that secret history, you'll see Storm was going to be a DC character. Colossus was going to be a DC character. And Nightcrawler was going to be a DC character. So he is really important. If they, had they not pissed him off, we don't have the modern giant size X-Men. Let me tell you something about Dave Cockrum. Not only did he, did, did he introduce the new X-Men and he do the very crucial first year's worth of X-Men books, he had to be replaced by John Byrne because he wasn't fast enough. And then he was barely fast enough when he replaced John Byrne after John left in 1980. John stays on the book for three and a half years. Dave then is ready to take over, and Dave does does it for about another two and a half years. And he kind of gets the financial windfall that he didn't get the first time, and neither did John, because royalties don't kick in until Dave's second term. And Walt Simonson will cover this too. It's, it, this is all so crazy and interesting. Dave Cockrum came to prominence at DC Comics drawing the Legion of Superheroes. That's where he became a fan favorite. His version of Wildstar, I'm sorry, Wildfire, and Timberwolf, and Sunboy, and Lightning Lad, all of his, and his brand new, he gave everybody a new costume. And he was extremely proud of those costumes. One of the key reasons you should know that you're going to learn right now for the very first time, and I, it was so disappointing to me that I disappointed him in any way, but I had licensed a, a, a property from him called the Futurians. We were going to do the Futurians together. The Futurians is a property that Dave created, whole cloth, that he did a graphic novel after his time on the X-Men was done. And I always loved it. I always, it always stuck with me. Well, of course, if you've listened to this podcast, you know how much I love Keith Giffen's run on the Legion of Superheroes. It's my favorite kind of run on that DC ever produced. Well, he was kind of a guy who followed Dave Cockrum like five artists later on the Legion. And he, and he, and he blew the Legion up. The Keith Giffen Legion of Superheroes of like 1981 to 1984 is the stuff of legends. It is fantastic. The Great Darkness Saga and all of the stories around it thrilled all of comic books. It was one of the most DC, most most important comic books, DC or otherwise, that was being published during that period. It had all of the same appeal and traits of the X-Men and the Titans and everything that we liked in these big, giant 
cosmic team book sagas. Well, I had informed Dave Cockrum that I was thinking of putting D of Keith Giffen on the Futurians. And I, Dave was extremely upset, uh, raised his voice. You can't do that. He changed all my Legion costumes. Boom, there's the reason. It was personal. There was animosity. There may have been something else. I, I was not privy to anything other than the immediate, well, all I can do is tell you what he told me, and I felt so bad that I had disappointed a hero of mine because I didn't know that he and Giffen had any water under the bridge. But it's true. Keith did alter all the costumes. And those 1970s Legion of Superheroes costume, Lightning, the, the costume for Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl and Cosmic Boy, um, Colossal Boy, they are fantastic. They are iconic. They are my favorite costumes. When they switched, I didn't care. I didn't mind as much because they didn't take away from all the, the great versions of those costumes that Dave Cockrum and Mike Grell had both illustrated the Legion in. And I felt like it, we'll always have those. Those are always going to exist. Keith just wanted to put his own imprimatur on the book. But boy, it was personal. And he's like, if Keith Giffen has anything to do with this, you can't do it. And immediately, I think I lost the trust of Mr. Cockrum. And the deal did not consummate. And that is why that did not go forward. I had, should have done better homework. And I was very um, disappointed in myself that I had disappointed Dave Cockrum, whom I, I really liked. But Dave's and his, co and his costumes and his contributions to the Legion of Superheroes, he held in high regard, as well he should. Well, when they wouldn't give him that artwork back and he came over and he, become, he became part of the team that was going to create the Giants as X-Men, well, of course, it blows up and it does extremely well. And people like me are just like, wow, this is the greatest, like, you know, version of the X-Men we could possibly ever consider. There is no John Byrne yet. All we're getting is Dave Cockrum. I, I, I believe that Giant Size X-Men number one, X-Men 100, and X-Men 107 are three of the best illustrated X-Men comics of all time. And I would put John Byrne in there as well. If I had a chance to buy pages from any of those books that featured the characters I like, I would. I wouldn't buy just any page. I need, you know, great pages. Well, Dave Cockrum's last issue, issue 107, introduces the Imperial Guard. Just like with episode one, the very first episode of this show, and I talk about the Squadron Supreme and how I was like, this is kind of like Marvel's Justice League. This was DC's Legion of Superheroes with the guy that put Legion of Superheroes in the modern era on the map and echoes of many of the characters that he contributed to the Legion. The Imperial Guard appear in a double-page splash facing off against the X-Men in this Shi'ar cosmic saga. The Shi'ar is a race. Uh, Queen Lalandra, Princess Lalandra is would become a lover of Charles Xavier. Very, very important, big, big piece of the X-Men lore. The Imperial Guard is their legion of superheroes. There is a, there's an echo for each and every one of them. There's an echo for Cosmic Boy, for Lightning Lad, for Wildfire, for Timberwolf, for Saturn Girl, for Colossal Boy. If you open it up and you look at it, it's the most blatant. It's more blatant than Squadron Supreme by a by a mile, it is more blatant. But it was back in the day where they just shrugged. Oh, that's okay. You're, you're kind of imitating us and we're imitating you and that's that's fine. It was explained to me when I did it that I didn't have a right to do it because that was something that, that comrades, that peers from rival companies kind of did with a wink and a nod at each other. Well, that memo didn't go to the five and seven-year-olds and the eight-year-olds and the 10-year-olds and the 12-year-olds that, that you know enjoyed it and watched the Imperial Guard become much more than just a one-issue nod. They became a tour de force appearing in multiple uh, titles across the Marvel spectrum over the next decade, eventually getting their own one shots and their own specials. And uh, Dave Cockrum did the Imperial Guard and watching the X-Men battle, basically Dave Cockrum's Marvel version of his Legion of Superheroes 
1977 in X-Men 107 was an absolute thrill. It thrilled it thrilled me. And it showed me how much Dave Cockrum still loved the Legion of Superheroes. And he really, I mean, he, he, he showed up the Imperial Guard to a character are echoes of Dave's work on the Legion of Superheroes. So when Jim Shooter says, I think it should have been the Legion and the X-Men, not the Titans, he's got his history and then you've got Dave Cockrum's history. And that's where we're going to pick up and we're going to pivot to Mr. Dave Cockrum's recollection of this exact uh, uh, story. Now, now again, many of Dave's characters, many of the new X-Men are offshoots of a group of villains, kind of rogue anti-heroes that he was going to introduce in the Legion of Superheroes, and they were called the Devastators. The Devastators. He speaks of it in this new uh, book, The Life and Art of Dave Cockrum. It is beautifully collated and collected by Glenn Cadigan, who took uh, pieces of different interviews like this X-Men Chronicles. He has an excerpt from that in here. He annotates everything. Everything's got the year of which he took. He, co- he took all these Dave Cockrum interviews. He does this great annotation of all of them as they all kind of build this cohesive story of Dave's career. Dave says that when he, uh, when in, in, especially in regards to Wolverine, man, this gets really interesting. Uh, he says, Roy Thomas editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time and one of their big writers of Conan, of Avengers, of Thor, said uh, he wanted a Canadian. And uh, he says here in this new life, this just came, this just came in the mail too, okay? I find this X-Men Chronicle the next day. This comes, everything is, it is a signal from the gods that I need to do this this episode, okay? Okay. He says, as the artist of the new series, this is what I'm going to get to. He says, here Roy suggested that he wanted a Canadian in a role in the new X-Men. Then we jump down, and he says that Len Wein, that's Len Wein talking about Roy suggesting that he wanted a Canadian in the new X-Men. In 2003, in an interview, Len Wein says this. Well, as the artist of the new X-Men series, Dave Cockrum resented Wolverine's existence for a long time because, listen to this, are you wait? Are you ready for this? Dave Cockrum says, I had a Wolverine that I had shown to Roy Thomas before his Wolverine. In, an, in a 2003 interview, Dave Cockrum suggests that Len Wein had created Wolverine at Roy's suggestion. Roy freely admits that he, that he had an idea for a Canadian character named Wolverine after seeing Dave Cockrum's drawing of Legion of Superhero villains called the Devastators, which included a brother and sister team called Wolverine and the Belladonna. I thought I had covered all this in an episode called I Was a Teenage Wolverine. You should listen to that entire episode. It really chronicles how they came about bringing Wolverine into the the the, the pages of the Hulk, and it gives you Roy Thomas, but this is not in there. This is all new. Like, I'm sleuthing. I'm reporting. I'm sleuthing. This is the first I've heard that, that Dave Cockrum had a character named Wolverine, okay? And then they show the drawing of his Wolverine, which ends up, his Wolverine looks exactly like Fang, who was the echo of Timberwolf, which is a character he re- he refined Timberwolf's look while he was on the Legion of Superheroes. Man, your head is spinning, so is mine. His Wolverine, that was part of his Legion team of the Devastators, looks like the echo of Timberwolf that he put in X-Men 107, Fang. But he's got his name as Wolverine. They show an illustration in this book. Uh, he said, uh, Dave says that my Wolverine... Uh, my Wolverine's haircut had been borrowed from that of the Legionnaire Timberwolf, whom Dave Cockrum had overhauled in 1973. 
he goes, I was kind of miffed at Roy Thomas about the whole thing, but it seemed kind of pointless to carry it on. In 2004, Dave Cockrum gives an interview where he says, uh, I accept the fact that Dave, uh, Roy Thomas, excuse me, Roy Thomas in 2004 speaks in regards to Dave Cockrum. He says, this is Roy Thomas, I accept the fact that I was probably shown the design by Dave Cockrum for a character called Wolverine. And, uh, but I don't have a conscious memory of that. But in any event, it was a virtual toss-up because I was going to make it a Canadian guy who's going to fight the Hulk and the name was going to be the Wolverine or the Badger. So, uh, as originally conceived, Wolverine was a very different character from what eventually would appear in the pages of the X-Men. But bottom line, Dave Cockrum shows in this, this is a little caveat, that he's a little miffed because he believes the name Wolverine and, 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 and the existence of the Wolverine character is because he had shown it to Roy. And again, these guys would go to bars, restaurants. They all were living in Manhattan, living in New, in New York City, coming into the city to drop stuff off at the offices. And so so that that is an interesting caveat. And in fact, Dave Cockrum, even though Wolverine appeared in the Hulk one, uh, 181, 182, 180, 181, excuse me, Dave is the first one that depicted Logan without his mask on. He depicted the version of him that looks like, you know, the way that we, the, the, the Frank Miller covered a Wolverine number one, Hugh Jackman without his mask on, with ever wearing a mask. That look is specific. And the cowboy hat and the, and the, and the jean jacket, that is very much what Dave Cockrum, his personal imprimatur, I, I do cover that in I Was a Teenage Wolverine as well as the uh, Secret History of the X-Men. I mean, so much. Again, the Devastators was the blueprint that became Giant Size X-Men. But carrying back to X-Men Legion, Dave is now drawing the X-Men book, and he's making good money monthly now drawing this book because royalties have kicked in over at Marvel. Well, in 1981, due to the success of the X-Men, Marvel decided to launch their spinoff called The New Mutants. And... uh, he says that during that time, they discussed doing a crossover between the X-Men and DC's Legion of Superheroes. He says uh, Dave had been selected to draw the crossover between the X-Men and Legion of Superheroes. He said, but the rising popularity of Marvel Wolfman and George Perez's new t- Teen Titans over at DC were threatening that. Uh DC wanted to supplant Legion with the Titans. Uh, this then references that com- that this uh, X-Men Chronicle by saying again, Jim Shooter saying, I think it's a mistake. They would be better off with the Legion. I already covered this, so that was his take. Um, and, and again, he reiterates that Dave was scheduled to do this. Well, here in 2002, um, Dave Cockrum says... There was originally going to be a Legion X-Men crossover. I was scheduled to draw it. I couldn't wait to make this comic book. He says, uh, then they decided, you know what? We're going to go with the Teen Titans instead because the Teen Titans is a hotter property for DC right now. This is DC. And he said, with the absence of the Legion of superhero superheroes in the team-up and the uh, schedule that he had on the regular X-Men title, it was easy for him to then bow out because he didn't want any part of a Titans X-Men team-up. He wanted to do X-Men Legion. Now, and and, in Walt Simonson in a 2005 interview is quoted here in this Dave Cochran book as saying, 
Actually, I was second in line to do X-Men Titans. It was Dave Cockrum's job to turn down. He was the actual artist that was chosen. Uh, because Dave was doing the regular book and he couldn't fit in a 64-page special, uh, I fell into the way. Now, check this out. And then they have the editor confirming that Dave, there was no way Dave could keep that, keep that schedule. Well, in a comics, <laughs> I've been digging up all these. In the comic book artist, issue number 10, focus on John, on, on, uh, on Walt Simonson. It was six ninety five. This thing is thick. It's a big, long interview with Walt Simonson. Number 10 came out in 2000. Walt Simonson talks about how he came to be the artist on X-Men Titans. He says, the interviewer says, look, I want to talk to you about the, I want to segue this interview towards the X-Men Titans. Were you part of plotting that? Did you want to do that job? And, and again, so many, I'm part of so many different Bronze Age groups who everyone wonders, how did Walt get it? Like, why wasn't it John Byrne, Dave Cockrum? Like, because it was a Marvel X-Men produced, but nobody from really with the history of the X-Men at the time did the book. So Walt says here, yes, the X-Men Titans book was a Marvel production. Len Wein was the DC liaison. Uh, Walter Simonson's wife, Louise, ended up being the editor because she was also editing the X-Men. Chris Claremont was the writer. I didn't have any monthly work at the time. I happened to walk into the X-Men office one day while Chris was sitting there and they were discussing what they were going to do with the crossover. They were discussing characters from the book and one of the names that Chris came up with as I entered the room was Darkseid because they wanted to use him as the major villain for the story. I said, if you guys are doing Darkseid, I'm drawing this book. And that is pretty much exactly how it happened. He said, uh, Louise Simonson, Louise, I think she's Louise Simonson at this point, point not Louise Jones, offered uh, the job to Cockrum because he had to be given that offer to turn it down because he was the regular X-Men artist at the time, but he couldn't fit it in, and so he had to turn it down, and that is how Walt Simonson came to do this book that was originally going to be the X-Men Legion of Superheroes, and I am going to tell you right now, that is just absolutely insane and nuts. Walt goes on to say in regards to the royalties on that book, that they really they knew that this book was going to do about a half a million, and that the X Men was selling upwards of one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand copies at the time. He said, uh, "We went to the powers that be and said, look, this is going to sell enough copies. Like, come on, this is not going to cripple you, Marvel, to cough up some money to us.'" And uh, the executives at Marvel told Walt and Chris, "We will not be giving you any money in regards to royalties on this." He goes, I do understand that that was the company's position and they were towing the line. None of us were actually going to abandon the job because of a lack of royalties, but we did feel a little nicked by it. As it happened, royalties did come to life in comic books between the time I started producing it and the time the book came out. So yes, we did end up getting royalties on that book. And he also alludes to that book did close to a half a million copies, which I'm going to tell you right now, it was the hottest book when it came out. So DC made the right call. Titans was the hot thing. I know from a fact, hanging out with George Perez at the time, uh, as a fan going to his table, he and Marv Wolfman were very excited to do the follow-up. The follow-up was going to be Titans X-Men and the two bad guys, if, in case you've not listened to the episodes where I cover this, George was very excited. It was going to be the Brotherhood of Evil who had been in the Titans. And if you listen to my 
um, Marvel versus DC series, the Doom Patrol and X-Men launched within the same calendar year, almost within a month of each other. And they had the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and they both appeared in their fourth appearances. The, the X-Men and Doom Patrol had a weird, weird history, but the Brotherhood of Evil had now become Titans villains as a result of Marv, Marv Wolfman and George Perez doing a Doom Patrol storyline and then co-opting the Brotherhood of Evil and making them new, just like Marvel had made the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants new in the Days of Future Past storyline in X-Men 141 and 142. So he said it was going to be the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And that is what uh, was going to be, instead of Darkseid and Dark Phoenix, which is what the Walt Simonson, Chris Claremont, X-Men Titans were. Well, wrapping up with one last, and this is this is how we end. I, some of you guys know that I did a book for Archie Comics last summer that I loved so much. It ended up being just a one-shot. I did not have the best working relationship with Archie. It just was not um, the kind of... Um, easygoing relationship that I usually seek out. At the same time, I was doing Snake Eyes with IDW, a licensed product, and I was doing a licensed product with Archie. Um, maybe we had a little more friction than we should have. It ultimately ended up being a one-shot, but I love that character. I'm so happy that I was able to do it and that you guys were able to get it, and it really um, is, is is something that I revisit. I look through. I'm, I'm super excited uh, by the fact that that even ever came to being. But the interesting thing is, while I am looking through this um, very fun, very excellent Life and Art of Dave Cockrum by Glenn Cadigan, there's a penciled page of one of the Archie characters that I love so much called Solar Man of the Atom. Briefly, Solar Man of the... I'm sorry. Let me backtrack. He looks like Solar Man of the Atom. Let me completely backtrack. This is Wrath of the Comet. The Comet and Solar look alike. Forgive me. I made that live gaffe right here. I'm rebooting. Dave Cockrum confesses that when Archie, in the early 90s, had licensed their line to DC Comics, they were going to do a series about the Comet. And here is a page of the Comet, who again has the same visor, colored, very similar in design to Solar Man of the Atom. Comet. Wrath of the Comet. I'm looking at an unpublished penciled page by Dave Cockrum of Wrath of the Comet number one. And Dave says, when DC got the Archie Comics license, which had the shield, which had uh, the comet, which which had uh, the, the the hood. I mean, all of these different Archie comic characters, Jaguar, all, all these characters that I had. I, I drew very briefly, but it is one of the highlights of my career, absolutely. And I hope you got my shield comic because I had just an absolute blast producing that. I think of it as like an annual, a one-shot. Um, but uh, even though it was semi-open-ended, Dave Cockrum was drawing a series for them called The Comet. And he says, in this series, The Comet was a failed superhero. He had become out of control, a rampaging villain. He blasted an entire city with radiation, killing and driving everyone out. And he took it over as his home base. The authorities somehow domed over the city and enclosed him. But it didn't do an awful lot of good holding him back. He said, uh, priorities changed the publisher. And I'm going to tell you right now that Archie um, Impact, they call it the Impact Line. When DC licensed the Archie characters, they called it the impact line of character of comics. It came out roughly, honestly, uh, the, 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 somewhere between X-Men, X-Force, and the dawn of Image, Youngblood. It was not a good time to be doing older characters at the time. Like like the timing just, I think, was, was the enemy there because they had some good talent. They had Dan Juergens. They had some really good people from DC trying to help launch this stuff. But D, uh, Dave said, due to change priorities, uh, 
He was told to stop after the first issue was finished. He said he turned in the complete issue of issue one and after a great length of time hadn't heard anything, he called DC to inform, to, to be informed as to what was going on with the, with the project and they said, we're going to have to cancel this. Um, he said he was concerned that they didn't like his art or something that he had done, but he was confirmed that, that it's just they were downsizing the line and they would not no longer be going through. But I love, I absolutely love, this is my sweet spot, unpublished stuff. And Dave Cockrum was doing the Comet, Archie's Comic, Comet, excuse me, Archie's, Archie Comics, the Comet in a series called Wrath of the Comet, where Comet basically had turned to a supervillain enclosed in a dome in a city. And again, I'm in the in this page, in this book, he's fighting off missiles and they're firing at him. Clearly, he's become a bad guy. I love Roads Less Traveled. I love that there used to be an X-Men Legion of Superheroes that was going to be produced by the guy that made both the X-Men and Legion of Superheroes. And I do believe there was no way on God's green earth that Dave Cockrum would have left the X-Men um, would have not done. He would have absolutely left his his monthly chores for four months, whatever, to produce that X-Men Legion. And it probably, possibly could have been the work of his career because of the passion that he had for two of his babies, the new X-Men and the Legion. But again, DC put forth. Then Jim Shooter, not not a fan. And and, and, and if you listen to some of my DC Marvel crossover podcasts, I will I detail in, in great length the difficult relationship that Paul Levitz and Jim Shooter had from the jump, from Superman, Spider-Man number two on. These guys didn't like each other. They ground each other. They had personal animosity. Um, they took it out on each other in terms of deadlines, all from Jim Shooter's own words on his own blogs. I read all of that to you. I bring that all into focus. Look, I love comics. I have a passion for comics, comic books that are made and comic books that weren't made, okay? Uh, we we kind of ran out of time. Next time, we'll get into what Beta Ray Bill's original name was going to be. But we can dangle that carrot for another episode because we went super long. You got tales of wizard comics and their mobster-like mentality as they believed they had a Don Corleone kind of ability to shape people in the dire warning. And you got to learn about some crazy stuff. Dave Cockrum had a Wolverine and Roy Thomas is like, yeah, I probably saw it. I mean, I read that to you. I read that. I read Roy's quote and what it really is is, yeah, I probably saw it and, and, and it influenced me. Um, but we were, we were going to do it anyway. And Dave Cockrum going, this pisses me off. I showed him a sketch of my Wolverine and next thing they have a Wolverine. But at least he was able to capitalize on, you know, being part of that, being part of all of that. Comic books is rich. The foundation of comic books has propped up all that is around us now. If you watched this week's episode of She-Hulk or you watched Moon Knight in the Spring or Ms. Marvel or What If or any of this, they were made by comic book creators. We are the dreamers. We are the makers of dreams, period, full stop. And uh, I won't stop until we get the full credit that we deserve, that we have always, um, we, we, that we've always, you know, needed to have in regards to our uh, imprimatur and our stamp on the things that we create and the ad- adaptations. I have had to fight to stay in the picture on every single thing I've ever done, but it's worth it because uh, because you just cannot. Again, going back to the Rick Springfield, you can sit there and go, "Well, I'll just be, I'll just play fairs for the rest of my life." I've seen some of those acts. I've seen how they dry, how they dry up. Or you can be very um, purposeful, very specific, and outwork and out hustle, and make sure that your work gets to larger venues, larger audience, and your work stays alive. It's all about you got to put the work in, and 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 I that is my. One tried and true is you got to put the work in people. And uh, and when you do, it pays off. And then someone with the Don Corleone uh, complex can't really do shit when they say to you, you know, uh, the, you know, 
you don't have a lot of options. What do you mean I don't have a lot of options? I have every possible option, but go on, go ahead, misrepresent me, misreport on me. Also, try and flush the comics industry down the tubes by telling people that their comics aren't worth much, okay? And I'm going to wrap it up like this. One guy who did come out of the woodwork, who's like, well, I understand why they did that. I mean, come on. No, I'm going to tell you. Back in the spring, Moon Knight's first appearance in Werewolf by Night was being pushed exorbitantly through the moon. Retailers at WonderCon had all priced them ridiculously. Moon Knight number one had hit, and they wanted max dollars. I said, you know what? I'm going to buy this for less money. I have I have first appearance of Moon Knights, but they're not in good condition. I wanted a good condition one. But at that point, because I'm a mature adult, I said, I will revisit this at Jan- in, in, in San Diego, maybe by the same retailer. Maybe I'll get it from the same retailer for $300 less, which is what it's supposed to be. You know what I did in San Diego? I bought the first appearance of Moon Knight from that same retailer at a far reduced rate because the exorbitant rate wasn't real. So... Again, you can say something's hot. That doesn't mean it is. You can say something's cold. That doesn't mean it is. And that is the power that Wizard ultimately tried to put forth on the industry. And just as I told you, from one spring convention to one summer convention, the course correction was there. I just had to wait it out. That didn't mean that that was the price forevermore. So if you had marked it as such, you would have to you would have to downgrade it later on. And that is the fluctuation of the marketplace. And that's why we don't do hot, hot bars and blue, blue bars. You just know that time passes, things change, and things stabilize. And that has been a whole lot to absorb, to consume, to digest on today's jam-packed episode. Well, that was as jam-packed an episode as I anticipated. And I got it all in there right before we all break for a long weekend. It is Labor Day. It's coming up. Let's timestamp it. Thank you Thank you as always for listening to me blather about this incredible passion and connect all these important people. You know, really, Dave Cockrum uh, is not celebrated nearly enough. He, again, like the Jack Kirby's of the world, he passed away. He died. Uh, he wasn't able to see all the fruits of his labor. His costume designs, his characters, his names, his actual hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of comic book storytelling are so important to the formation of where we're at right now in the culture. Walt Simonson as well, Chris Claremont, all of the names that we, uh, you know, cover today. And boy, do I, I wish we would have seen an X-Men Legion of Superheroes. Wow. I went super long today. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm going to wrap up and we're going to forego your generous and wonderful uh, reviews that you guys leave uh, for the show. When you do, I read them normally at the end of every episode in case... I go extra long, and today I'm just going to get right to it and prepare us for our exit and encourage you to look me up on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld. If this is your first time listening, I am at um, Robert Liefeld, full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, at Twitter. I am on Instagram, just at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I, I love getting your messages, your um, your mentions, your DMs. I love reaching out, all the different um, conversations and discussions that we have across both platforms. Thank you so much for contacting me. This page has a Facebook page. It's called Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. It is on Facebook. Find that page. Give me a like. Give me a uh, comment. I will find you. I will react. More importantly, I have a group, a group that is going nonstop, always discussing about uh, my career, the characters, anything that I've covered, the Avengers, you know, Fantastic Four, all the Heroes Reborn, Onslaught Reborn, whether it's the Image stuff, New Mutants, X-Force, Hawk and Dove, 
we cover all of it. Fighting American. Awesome stuff. We, we, we do it at a group called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. You will know that you're in the right place when either myself or a moderator named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, um, click you click you on through and approve your request. You know how, how it's done. You make a request to join a group. Boom, you get clicked through. Myself or Terry will do it. That's how you know you've you found the right place. Come join us at Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Uh, we look forward to seeing you. Um, if, if that is something that you would choose to check out over on Facebook, Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. I am now twice a week on an incredible app called Whatnot. Whatnot. Go to your app store, get Whatnot. It is a yellow symbol on a black background. It is the premier uh, collectibles app, uh, live sales, live stream sales, uh, toys, Funko Pops. I conduct on my two, sh- uh, two, two shows. I come directly to you. I am really, uh, scaling back my convention activity. And this is the way that I can reach you with signed comics, signed Funko pops, signed toys, sketch art remarks. We offer it all on my whatnot sessions. If you get whatnot, look me up, Rob Liefeld, and you can see when my ske- my shows are scheduled. Some people again on, on the last show, they're like, this is an extension of the Rob observations. I get to be a bit of a blatherer. And, uh, and, and I'm talking the entire time. And sometimes these sessions stretch on for a couple hours. We have great deals, uh, again, signed art toys, Funkos, all for you guys waiting over on the whatnot app. Look me up, hook me up. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys there guys at the end of every episode, I encourage you to take care of yourself of, of yourself as best as you possibly can have fun. It's Labor Day weekend. Go have fun. Go, um, sign off really the, the it, it's not technically the end of summer, but we all know what's the end of the summer. Come on. Ever since I was a kid, summer ends with Labor Day. I just don't have to pack up my notebook and my and my three ring binder and go to school. Okay, but but most of the world is ending summer this weekend, and you should too. Be safe. Be safe. Don't be reckless. Don't have too much to drink. Um, um, do it all in moderation, but have fun getting a bratwurst. There is an, I mean, all over the country, there's street fairs, there's celebrations. It's going to be molten lava, red hot, burn your face hot. But uh, go have a good time. Go have bratwursts and sandwiches and hamburgers and tacos and have a great, uh, uh, you know, backdoor barbecue, grill it all up, have ice cream and cupcakes and donuts and all the good stuff. Watch great movies, watch fun streaming stuff, read a great comic book, please, please, on behalf of all of us in the comic book world, please spend, spend some time with your favorite comics. Guys, girls, everybody, I'll be back around waiting for you to see me next time. So swing on by. I will be here and we will most certainly absolutely talk again real soon.